0: appreciated the opportunity to relax a little bit last week. It was good to join you online. Definitely not the same thing as, uh, as being here and being present, but I'm so thankful that we have that capability. I'm thankful for our uh, media team and our tech team that make that possible for so many folks when they can't be here. You know, Pastor Jason's message uh, last week was very timely as we were wrapping up a year and a, and a time of focused celebration. Remember the challenge was to be careful that we don't put Jesus uh, on the shelf, specifically not to let your relationship with him uh, grow stale and to keep walking with him and keep serving faithfully and keep living a life um, that, that honors him. And he mentioned last week, I want to mention to you again, there's a great resource uh, that we want to make available to our church family. We call it Renew in 22, and uh, that resource is online on our website, and it covers five areas of renewal that will help you keep your relationship with Christ fresh uh, over 2022, help you to walk with conviction and and with confidence and with uh, consistency. Those five areas, of course, are the Bible, uh, worship, prayer, serving others, and then giving. Uh, not just your money, your time, your talent, your treasures, but, but giving. And the way that you connect or sign up to be a part of that is you simply go to the website, gsfpcorg renew. And when you type that uh, address into your browser, that'll take you directly to where you can sign up and you can see the resources and also get some encouragements um, throughout the year. But, you know, it's not really just about having a good year in 2022. It's about us as followers of Christ living in light of eternity. And and our objective is what John wrote in in 1 John 2.28 to the church when he said, Dear children or little children talking to believers, abide in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame. at His coming. That's our objective, that we want to abide in Christ. We want to stay faithful in that relationship and in walking with Christ so that when he comes, because he is coming again, and when he comes, we want to be excited about his coming, not shrinking back in fear uh, because we know we haven't done what he's called us to do. We'll turn with you this morning to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 11 through 27 where Jesus is telling the parable of the ten minas. Now, you know that parables were told. To, to illustrate truth, Jesus would take uh, something in the realm of the, f- realm of the familiar to illustrate something that might be unfamiliar to the people. Specifically, he would do that related to the kingdom of God. He would use something familiar to them to teach them truths about the kingdom of God. Now, this particular parable, just as a, a background, it's built on a historical incident that would have been very familiar to the people of Judea. In 40 B.C., Rome assigned Herod the Great. They installed him as the monarch over Israel in 40 B.C. And he ruled from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. And upon his death, his will stipulated that the kingdom would be divided among his three sons. One of those sons was named Archelaus. Uh, He was the son who was given Judea which included Jerusalem and Jericho. Archelaus had actually already built a palace in Jericho even before his father died. Now, as Jesus is telling this story, this parable of the 10 minas, he's on that road between Jericho and Jerusalem. Archelaus, when he, uh, when he took over after his father died, he believed that a good ruler ruled by fear and intimidation. So the first thing he did when he took over was on the very first passover he slaughtered 3000 Jews. And so the people hated him. They they despised him. He despised him. He was wicked and he was murderous. Well, the time came that Archelaus was to go to Rome and he would go to Rome to receive the official sanction of Caesar that he indeed would be the monarch over Judea. When he went to Rome, the people in Judea sent a delegation Ahead of him, basically with this word for the king, we don't want this man to reign over us. Well, Archelaus, after he had gone to Rome, came back. He did rule and reign over Judea. He, of course, repaid those people harshly. Fortunately, he didn't last very long as the monarch of Judea. So Jesus is taking this familiar story, and he's going to use this story to help the people understand some principles about the kingdom of God. So let's look together at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business." The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas." And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas." I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So they're traveling on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jesus has told the disciples many times prior to this that he would go to Jerusalem, and he told them what was going to happen there, but they still didn't get it. Even those who were closest to him, the the disciples, the apostles, and others who followed, they anticipated that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, uh, the the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. You see that in verse 7. That's what they thought was going to happen, that Jesus was going to usher in the kingdom of God at that time. But it's not time. The time will come, but it won't come yet. And you see in verse 11, it says that as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Well, what what things had they heard? Back up just a little bit in those first 10 verses. You see that Jesus had been in Jericho at the home of Zacchaeus. And in verse 9, he declares that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. And then in verse 10, he reminds them why he's come. Look at verse 10. He says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He said, hey guys, listen, it's not time for the kingdom to come, the kingdom to be established on earth. It's not time for that. That's not why I've come. The reason I've come is to seek and save the lost. I haven't come to set up the earthly kingdom. I haven't come to right all the, the social wrongs and to make the world moral. I haven't come at this time to establish economic justice. Not yet. Now one day Jesus is going to reign over all and he's correct, going to correct all these ills, but right now He's come to save and to do the work of salvation. When he comes again, he'll establish his earthly kingdom. When he comes again, he will fix all the wrongs and all the evils in our society. He'll reign, the scripture says, with righteousness and justice and peace. But not yet. So in verse 12, he tells this parable. He says it was a noble man. A noble man in the Greek is simply a person of high birth. There is no one of higher birth than Jesus. This parable is clearly about himself. This is a nobleman is going to a a far country. Now, when you see far country in Scripture, going to a far country indicates not only distance but also time. This nobleman is going to a far place. He's going to be gone for a while. There's going to be a delay. By the way, you know what happens eight weeks from the time of Jesus telling this parable? Eight weeks from this point, he's going to be ascending into heaven. He's going to a far place, going to be a delay, going to be gone for a time. In fact, Jesus is in heaven right now. He's seated at the, at the right hand of the Father. He's been crowned. He's been given the name above every name. He is currently the rightful ruler, and when he returns, he will reign over all. But what are we to do until he returns? That's what the parable is about. He's telling them what needs to happen between the time the nobleman leaves and he returns. Verse 13, as the nobleman's preparing to leave, he calls in his servants. Now again, The apostles, those others around Jesus, expect that when the kingdom comes, I think it's going to come immediately when they get to Jerusalem, when the kingdom comes, they're going to have important positions and and dignity and honor. They believe they're about to receive the reward for all that they've suffered for him in the time that they have been with him. They're dreaming of sitting on his right hand and on his left hand in his kingdom, enjoying ease and honor after all the difficult work and all the contempt they've experienced as his followers. But that's not why the servants are called in here. When the nobleman is away, he's letting them know that there is work to be done. While he's gone, they are to be his businessmen. They are to uh, attend to his business. What is his business? Verse 10, tell me. I want to hear from you. What's his business? Verse 10. To seek and to save the lost. We've got to remember that's his business. So, yes, the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus are going to be part of his kingdom. His kingdom is already in them. They're going to be part of his kingdom. But until he returns to rule and reign, he's calling on them to expand the kingdom, to grow the kingdom, to continue his work, which was to seek and to save those who were lost. While they're waiting for his return, verse 13 tells us that they've been given what they need to take care of his business to serve his interests. He's giving them everything they need. He's not just calling them to this task without equipping. He's giving them everything they need. But what they're, to be, what they're given is not to be spent on their own pleasures. What they're given belongs to him and is to be used by him. What are they given? Well, it says each of the ten servants is given one mina. Now, a mina is not a, a large amount. It's not as big as a talent. A mina is basically about three months wages in their day. It's about one-sixtieth of a talent. So obviously, they're going to have to be very careful on how they spend and, and how they invest that mina. And they have to recognize they're being given a stewardship of this nobleman's wealth, and then he's telling them, get busy. Get involved in my work. Advance my business interests. Now, before we move to verse 14, let's just stop right here and do a little bit of, of application. Let me give you four application points just out of these first few verses here. In, in uh, chapter 19, 11 through 27. Number one is this. All Christians, all Christians have business to do for Christ. Every believer has business to do for Christ in this world. All of us. All of us have been blessed. We've all been spiritually gifted. We've all been resourced. And those blessings and those gifts and those resources are that we would carry out the business of Christ in this world. See, when you surrendered to Christ, when you gave your life to Christ, you acknowledged what was already true. You may not have known it, but it was already true that everything belongs to him. You belong to him and everything that you possess belongs to him. It's for his business, and we are simply stewards. We're to manage and to use all that we have for him because it's his. Application point number two, he provides everything we need to be successful in the undertaking of his work. He gives it to us. He doesn't expect us to figure out on our own, to come up with our own resources. He provides everything we need to be successful. Number three, he expects results. And he has the right to expect results. You are his. Everything you have is his. He has the right to expect you to do what he's called you to do with what he's given you. Number four, we must keep working until he comes. You see what he told them? Take care of business until I come. Is there going to be difficulty? Absolutely. Is there going to be opposition? No question about it. But difficulty and opposition, while we expect them, are not an excuse to quit. We're to keep working until he comes. Verse 14, he's given the charge to these servants. Verse 14 refers to his citizens or his subjects. By the way, there's a a difference in a a subject and a slave. A slave is loyal to that master A subject. Uh, A king could have many subjects in his kingdom that are not loyal to him, that are not serving him. But you know, the Bible says that every day, or one day, every person is going to be subject to him. Whether they intend to or not, whether they desire to or not, the day is coming, Scripture says, Paul says it in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess So those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, those who are under the earth, without exception, everyone is going to bow and declare Jesus is Lord. That time is coming. And some have already declared that. And some will not declare it until it is too late. But what he's saying about this subject here is that everyone belongs to his kingdom. Listen, you may hate Christ, but he owns you. And like it or not, he is sovereign over you. You might worship Buddha. You might worship Muhammad. You might worship Allah. You might worship Satan. But Christ owns you. You're living in his world. He created. Scripture tells us everything was created by him before for him. Not anything was made that was made. Because he created, he owns you and everything in this world. And even if you reject Christ and even if you say you want nothing to do with him, you will have to do with him and he will have to do with you. That day is coming. These subjects hated the nobleman. They hated him without reason. Now, historically, these people that Jesus is talking to, these Judeans who knew about Archelaus, understood that that those Jews had reason to hate Archelaus. There was no reason to hate the nobleman. Jesus said about himself in John 15 25, they hated me without a cause. The Jews of Jesus' time, especially the religious leaders, hated him, they rejected him as the king of kings. They rejected him as Messiah. Even though there was a clear proclamation and convincing truth, the people to whom God sent Jesus would not accept him as their king, would not receive him as their Messiah. People like the noblemen today, don't they? They say, we don't want this man to reign over us. I think there are a lot of people who would love to be rescued from the destruction that their sin has caused in their life there are a lot of people who would love to know that they can spend eternity in heaven and not hell but the problem is they don't want Jesus to reign over them and I'm going to tell you that's the heart and language of the unbeliever that's what it all boils down to if you've ever tried to share your faith and found someone that just was peculiarly resistant that's what it boils down to I don't want him to reign over me. Yeah, I'd like all the blessings, I'd like all the benefit, but I don't want God telling me what to do and how to live my life. We don't want this man to reign over us. Listen to me this morning. Christ is Savior only for those for whom he is Lord. You hear me? Christ is Savior only for those for whom he is Lord. He can't be your Savior if he's not your Lord. You don't see that dichotomy in scripture. When a person comes to Christ, they surrender themselves to the lordship of Christ. Yes, he's their savior. He's forgiven their sins. They have to acknowledge they're a sinner and in need of forgiveness. But they also have to commit themselves to Christ as lord of life. He's only savior for those for whom he is lord. And for whom is he lord? Only those who are obedient to him. Don't miss that. It doesn't matter what you declare with your lips. What matters is what you live out in your life if you're really obedient. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? That's why Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's those who obey those for whom he is truly Lord, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. They belong to Christ. Verse 15, you guys are getting me wound up this morning. Verse 15, when he returned, when the nobleman returned, this is now Jesus is turning the story. It's moving to the time of his return, his second coming. You remember we studied that a few months back in Revelation 19, that Jesus was going to descend from heaven on a white horse. All these saints and angels were going to be coming with him, and he was going to come to earth and establish his kingdom. And, And there are many events that are going to happen upon his return, but here in verse 15, 15 he's referring specifically to the time of accounting and reward those who profess to serve him those who were given a responsibility by him are going to be called to appear before him so he can examine what they've done and so verse 15 he returns and the servants are called in look at verses 16 and 17 the first servant the first servant comes and he says Lord your mina has made 10 minas more. Now, now, don't miss this. There's incredible humility in that statement. The servant doesn't say, hey, look what I did. Check out my success. He says, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. You know what that is? It's a recognition by this servant that, that the strength he had to work, that the abilities and, and opportunities he was given, that his success all came from the Lord. It's not his, he didn't own it, it's from the Lord. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. I have worked hard by the grace of God in me. Romans fifteen eighteen. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You know, the, the great thing about recognizing it's him working is this great encouragement to us in our work. When we recognize it's not us, it's not about us, it's not about our abilities, it's about him working in us. You know, because when, when we think about serving Jesus, especially when we think about seeking and saving the lost, about sharing our faith, we get all wigged out. And we get so worried about it. Why? Because we're hung up on ourselves and what we can do. We say things like, well, I'm, I'm not good at that, or I might look foolish, or I might say the wrong thing. No, it's not about you. He's the one who gives the ability, and he's the one who gives the enabling. Lord, it's your mina. I'm just going to faithfully do what you've called me to do. It's yours. The mina is yours. The investment is yours. The success is yours. Sometimes we have this bad habit of looking around at what other servants are doing, and and we think, well, I, I just can't do it as good as he can or as good as she can. Listen, how you accomplish what God has for you may look different than how someone else does it. These first two servants probably didn't make the exact same investments, but they were both successful. Why were they successful? Because they had a good broker? Because one was smarter than the other? Why were they successful? They were successful because of Jesus. Jesus. They were simply being faithful to what he had called them to do, and he made them successful. He gave them what they needed to invest. He provided the right environment for their investment. He made sure that their investment was successful. He grew their investment. They just stepped out in faith and did the work that he had called them to do, and the results were up to him. Look at verse 17. He says to this first servant, first of all, a commendation, well done. That's probably all the servant needed. Just to hear the master say, well done but he also got a reward. He said, you're going to have authority over 10 cities. Now, what is that about? Listen, when Jesus sets up his millennial reign on earth, scripture tells us we will rule under him and we will rule for him. We're going to be part of the rule of his millennial reign. And those who are faithful are going to be given entire cities and and regions to rule over under him. And we already know this, we're also going to be rewarded in heaven based on what we did while awaiting his return. But here's a great question. How does a guy go, he's entrusted with one mina, that's just three months wages, that's not much. How does he go from being entrusted with that little bit to ruling over ten cities? Look at verse 17, here's why. Because you've been faithful in very little. You notice that neither of these first two servants complained, well, you know, God, this is lo- uh, nobleman, sir, master. This is not really enough to trade with. I don't know how you expect me to do much with this little bit. They didn't say that. They were content to use what they had been given to the best of their ability. And need I remind you, think back to the loaves and the fishes, five loaves and two fishes used to feed 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 20, 25,000 people. Why? Because little is much with Jesus. Because he's been faithful in little, he has been given great responsibility. Verses 18 and 19, the report of the second servant is similar to the first. He has a return of five minas, and he's made to rule over five cities. Now, both servants were given ability and opportunity. Both servants were successful, but to varying degrees, we're called to be diligent and faithful, and we are blessed, and we are a blessing. When, when we labor with the Lord, our labor is never in vain, and you see that with both servants. They simply were willing to step up to the plate, to do what he called them to do, to put some labor, some effort into it, and it was not in vain. They were both successful. But you have to ask the question, why did the second servant have a smaller return than the first? And, and we don't know. That's not answered here in the scripture. Now, if the second servant did his best, it really doesn't matter. Because the Lord is not as concerned about the return as he is about the faithfulness of the servant. The result, the return, is up to the Lord. But we do need to be reminded here it's possible the first servant was more diligent. It's possible that he reply, uh, applied himself more fervently to the task. So I would just say this to us, regardless of the outcome, we need to be sure, we need to be certain that we're giving our very best in our service to the Lord. Don't worry about the result. Don't focus on the result compared to someone else's result. Just make sure you're giving your very best in your service to the Lord. Now, if you've got children, especially if you have more than one child, you've probably said this to your children, our children... Um, had varying degrees of success in school. <clears throat> I was kind of a hard man when it came to grades, just kind of. But, you know, it comes down to this with your kids when, when, they, when they make different grades, have varying degrees of success. You have to look them in the eye and say, listen, here's what I need to know. I need to know that you gave your very best. Because reality is not every child is capable of an A or a B. Or some of those other greats. I need to know. I, I don't care what your brother made when he took that same course. I just need to know that you gave your very best. These first two servants were, were clearly faithful. They, they represent genuine followers. They loved their master. They, they honored their master. They lived to serve him and please him is a privilege for them. But now look at verse 20. <clears throat> another comes. Another servant. By the way, the word another in the Greek doesn't mean of the same kind, it means one of a different kind. This servant is not the same as the first two. So what's happening here is we're moving from those who are faithful to to the fakers, the posers. This guy is in the master's household, but he's not really a part of it. First of all, the very first thing you see is he is careless with the things of God. You don't take something of value and put it in a handkerchief and carry it around in your pocket. If you're not going to do anything with it, you should at least bury it. And make sure you mark the spot where you buried it. But you, you don't care. The Jewish rabbis would say of someone who carried something around in a handkerchief in their pocket that they were foolish. That is foolish. You could easily lose it. So this servant is careless with the things of God. He's also useless and thoughtless. He has no desire to obey and to honor the nobleman. He has no concern for what's important to the nobleman. He has no desire to make any effort. He's certainly not going to make any sacrifice to advance the cause of the nobleman. He doesn't care. doesn't care what the nobleman thought about him. He has no desire to prove himself trustworthy. But look how foolish this guy is. He doesn't just hand it over and say, here's your mind back. I didn't do anything. Look what he does. He goes on and he accuses the nobleman of being unfair of being too harsh. He says, look, you make us slaves do all the work and you take all the credit. You're not fair. I'm gonna tell you something. If we could be present at the final judgment of unbelievers, that's exactly what they're gonna be yelling and cursing at God about. You are unfair. You're too harsh. You're judgmental. And he's not the one who put them in that position. Now, some commentators on this passage believe the servant is a believer, that he just represents an immature or a a carnal believer. I'm not sure a true believer could make such accusations against the Lord. And I've not seen anywhere else in Scripture that the Lord calls one of his own wicked. In fact, he says here, look, If you had the slightest bit of faithfulness, you could have at least put my mina in the bank. Now, I'm going to tell you a foreign concept here. It's not not true in our day. Used to be you could go to a bank, and you could put your money on deposit with that bank. They would loan it out to someone else for interest, and they would pay you part of the interest. Some of you people over 80 remember those days? It's gone, isn't it? He said, look, if if you had any little modicum of faithfulness and loyalty to me, you could have put my money in the bank where I could have gotten interest. But the servant was indifferent. He didn't care. He he took what had been offered and he just stuck it in his pocket and went on with life. And that's exactly what many people do today with the gift of salvation. It's offered to all. i got to wrap it up. Verse 27. You see, those enemies of the noblemen, those who sent the message, we don't want this man to reign over us, the enemies are destroyed. He says, bring them here and, and slaughter. That means completely wipe out. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, that makes God sound pretty harsh, doesn't it? 2 Peter 3, 9. Jesus is coming. He's going to return. The People are wondering, well, when is, he, when is he coming? It seems like he's forgotten like his clock is off. No, the Lord is going to keep his promise, but he's patient. He's waiting. And he's patient because he doesn't want anyone to come to this state of judgment and destruction. He's patient. He's keeping his promise. He will return, but he's patient because he wants all to have the opportunity to be saved but when jesus returns again there will be judgment on his enemies well who who are his enemies blasphemers people who who persecute his church who are his enemies jesus enemies are anyone who refuses to surrender to the terms of salvation anyone who refuses to surrender to lordship anyone who refuses to surrender to the rule and reign of christ in his or her life that's whose enemies are there may be i wouldn't think it would be many there may be a few in this room may sound harsh for you to hear me say you're an enemy of christ but there may be some of you in this room So, I'm I'm not an enemy of Christ. I love Jesus. I come to church. I read my Bible. But if you've never surrendered to the lordship of Christ, if you're like this servant, you're not serving and honoring him and living life for him and letting him be Lord of life, letting him rule and reign now. If he doesn't rule and reign now, he will ruin you then. The vast majority in this room are like these first two servants, we're legit. We're faithful followers. Maybe the challenge and encouragement for us today is just to recognize we've got to give it all we've got. We can't keep doing a halfway job. Everything we have, everything we are, belongs to Him. Is to be used for the advancement of His kingdom. And it's not just about looking into 2022 and thinking ahead to 2022 and saying I want to be more of God wants me to be in 2022. It's about eternity. It's about living a light of eternity, not only for us, but for these who still don't know him, who don't know they're going to be facing destruction and slaughter. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's his business. And in this parable, he's telling us, hey, I've I'm, I'm gone. I'm in a distant place. There's going to be a delay, but during that time, what you're going to be doing is advancing my kingdom and taking care of my business. That's it. Everything else funnels down to that. There's only one priority we need to have. He says, engage in my business until I come. I want to close just with one verse from another very familiar parable. You remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew about the, the two builders, one who built his house on the rock, the other on the sand. Of course, the one on the sand collapsed when the storms came, the one on the rock stood strong. You remember that at the end of that parable he said this, Matthew seven, twenty-four. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. and does them don't miss that it's not just about gathering weekly and hearing the word of God it's not about going to Bible study it's not about reading the word every day and just hearing the word of God it's about doing the word of God doing the word of God God I pray that Geyer Springs First Baptist Church be a people who hear your word and do it.